I looked at this. For, uh, let's go look at the verse from a couple verses from last week before we get into this text because it it uh, builds on what we already had covered in verses one through eight. I had mentioned that um, early on when I was first saved, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths was one of my original life verses and it became a collection of, of three or four that I still regularly speak to myself and many of you probably uh, do as well. But I was thinking about how does the world really operate? How does a person that doesn't know Christ really operate? And frankly, to some degree, how do some people that have kind of drifted away from the Lord, maybe even walked away from the Lord, how do they operate? And the verse would go something like this. Trust in myself and the world with all my heart. And lean to my own opinion. In all my ways, I'll do what I think is best, and I'll chart my own path. That is essentially the attitude of many. Now, they may not think of it in those terms, but if they really stood face-to-face with God, that's exactly what they would find they had been doing for a long time. Now, obviously, that to live your whole life that way and die in that state is an eternal tragedy. But even in life now, Solomon is saying, God, there are blessings that God will withhold now when we don't walk according to his will. The world tells you to listen to your heart. It used to be an 80s song, listen to your heart, you know, back in the 90s or something like that. Um, the world says listen to your heart, but the Bible says your heart is deceitfully wicked. So the prophet said, so well, that kind of pulls the rug out of that mindset. The world will tell you to listen to your inner voice. You ever heard that? Oprah probably says it 20 times a year. I don't know. You know, you got to listen to that voice inside you. She's not the only one. I mean, a lot of people say, you, you'll, you'll watch any kind of show and they'll say, you just, you just got to listen to that person inside of you. God says not to listen to your inner voice. He says, listen to his voice. Because your inner voice and your heart are connected and both are corrupted. Jesus said, he wants our joy to be full, right? He wants our joy to be full. God wants the fullness of his grace to flow in our lives. But we'll have to submit and follow the will of God, which is to follow the wisdom of God for that to take place. There's, there's not another way. You can't say, Lord, I want the fullness of joy and I want the fullness of your grace. I just don't want to do what your word says. And Solomon is saying, my son, don't forget there's not another way. That's essentially what he's writing chapter after chapter. My son, there's not a shortcut. There's not another way. This is the only way that you'll find the blessing of God when you submit to the wisdom of God, which is to accept the will of God. It's that simple. And he's given us, now I'm thankful for this. I hope you are too. He's given us his Holy Spirit to help us. Even though the the Proverbs was written before the Holy Spirit came in the book of Acts. Obviously, the Holy Spirit was still at work in the world. All the way in Genesis 1, we see the Holy Spirit work in the world, f- hovering over the face of the deep. But the giving of the Holy Spirit indwelling in our hearts, that came after Jesus ascended, and then you have 
The church is baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then you have individual baptism of the Holy Spirit, but all Christians receive the indwelling of the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit reminds us not to doubt His Word because our flesh will doubt the Word of God. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Because if you walk by sight, you would assume that everyone that's living opposed to God that looks successful, wow, they're making the right choice and I'm making the wrong choice. Well, that's what your eyes would tell you, but the Scriptures would tell you, you know, go to the end. So God gives us his spirit to remind us not to doubt his word, but instead to doubt our doubts and, in fact, reject our doubts. Not just doubt them, but reject them. We want to look at um, three things. If you're taking notes tonight, you can see on the slides the name of our study tonight, the fullness of wisdom. And we want to look at three things this evening from the text. The first is, in these first few verses I've titled, Give to God. Very creative, I know. Solomon writes, Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, what does this word honor mean? Honor the Lord with your possessions. The word honor, which is to say to give weight to the Lord, to give weight to to the Lord, kind of lean hard in that direction to give way to the Lord. Uh, it also means to glorify the Lord with your possessions. It's, this is easier to do with some possessions than others, I, I will admit. It's easier to take honor the Lord with a car and go pick someone up and bring them to church. Simple, simple example of where you took something that God has given you, used it to honor the Lord. But what he's saying here is that our possessions are first and foremost They are tangible means to be used for the Lord to bring glory to God and to be used in service to Him. Our pleasure from possessions is secondary. This is what he's saying. Honor the Lord with your possessions. doesn't say honor yourself with your possessions. It says honor the Lord with your possessions. Our pleasure from possessions is secondary. It doesn't mean we'll never get pleasure from our possessions, it means that that's not the focus of our possessions. That's a secondary thing. comes along for the ride at times. The primary focus of our possessions is that they be used for God's glory. Our possessions should produce the following things. Gratitude. You ever been ungrateful? You ever woke up and realized, hold on a minute, time out. Why am I whining and complaining? When I look around, I see all this stuff that God has given me, and some people really don't have a pot to boil water in. Literally. Most of the world is dirt poor. Most of the world lives on less than $48,000 a year. I'm sorry. All but like, all but like, it's bad. I think of the world lives on less, far less than that. It's only about 10% that make 48000 a year or more in the world. Only about 10%. We always compare, we're comparing ourselves to whoever's on e-entertainment news. It's ludicrous that Satan has so twisted people's thinking. But our possessions, they should produce gratitude. They should produce gratitude. They should produce devotion to God. They should produce a heart to share what God has given us, to be hospitable 
to share with what we have with other people. If our stuff isn't doing that, I call it stuff there instead of possessions. We'll give it a modern name, stuff. If our stuff isn't doing that, we're not honoring the Lord with our stuff. We're simply stuffing ourselves with our stuff. And, our, and then we're puffing ourselves up with our stuff. A lot of people are really proud of all that they have. Look at all that I have. It's your car compared to my car. You don't have this logo on your shirt. All kinds of things that people think, and they puff themselves up, and they stuff themselves with their stuff. God wants, God counsels, and I might add, he commands us to look up, to be thankful, and to say this. This would be a good prayer for all of us. God, how do I use what you've given me to glorify you? How do I use what you've given me to glorify you? Some of you have more than others, but we all have something that can be used to glorify the Lord. Do we give the weight of our intentions to using what we've been given to serve the Lord? Are we intentional about, I want to use this to serve the Lord? I'm not talking about rationalizing and saying, I need to buy this because I'm really going to, this Ferrari is really going to help. Uh, someone needed, I met a guy who, who's never gone 180 miles an hour and he really needs to do it once so I can bless him. People will rationalize anything to buy something and supposedly it's for the glory of God. Well, God sees through those games. So I'm talking about really God is saying, no, no, no. I bless that, use that for my service. Do we get the weight of our intentions that would serve him? And by the way, all of our possessions don't actually, he says, here he says, um, honor Lord with your possessions. Now Solomon knows, because the scriptures make this claim, our possessions actually aren't our possessions. God owns all of our possessions. Every single thing. Every single thing you can put your hands on or think that you own, God actually owns it. The Bible says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, which is just a metaphor to say he owns it all. Everything. Everything belongs to God. In fact, he owns our bodies, our breath, our minds, our abilities, our time, even our time. God owns that too. It all belongs to God. I love 1 Corinthians 6.20. I think I mentioned it Sunday, but I'll mention it again. For you are bought at a price. Therefore what? Glorify God. In your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, if your body doesn't belong to you, you can better be sure your stuff doesn't belong to you either. None of the things that we, God says it all belongs to me. Your breath, your mind, your spirit, uh, the car in the driveway, the stuff in the attic, all belongs to me. Glorify God with our time, with our talents, with our gifts, with our treasures. And remember, we're only temporary stewards of these things. We're only temporary holding these things. You know, there's houses in Richmond that like six different families have lived in over the last 150 years because the original builders, they've long gone and there's a gravestone for them now. We're just temporary holders of anything. We'll return to the dust. Solomon lets us know that too. We're going to return back to dust. We were made from dust. We'll return back to dust. Uh, our stuff will either head to the dump 
or will be passed on to other people. That, that actually really weirded Solomon out in the book of Ecclesiastes. Really bothered him. I acquired a lot of stuff, and someone else is going to be riding this chariot. That was a custom-made chariot. But the things that are honored the Lord, well, they'll be stored in heaven. Isn't that good to know? The things that honor the Lord are stored in heaven. They're not possessions. They're gifts of works that are done in righteousness. And Jesus said this, didn't he? Matthew 6, 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Isn't it interesting that Jesus left all of his treasures in heaven to come to earth, but he tells us we can be laying treasure up in heaven. So how do we do this? How do we lay up treasure in heaven? Where, where do we start, and how do we grow more in the area of giving to God? Well, it, it starts in the mind and the heart. That's where it starts. It starts in hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It starts in the heart and in the mind. <laughs> by believing, we're to be living sacrifices. Let's take a look at this right here. Believe... The first thing we have to do, we have to believe that all things belong to God. You have to tell yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You don't need me there. You can do this riding to work. Lord, it all belongs to you. Everything belongs to you. My breath belongs to you. Well, you know it belongs to him when you need something from him. Right? It all belongs to him. So, But you have to believe that. It starts in the mind there. We're living sacrifices, and uh, God wants us to, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, he wants us to remind ourselves constantly that our gifts are from God. Not only are they from God, but they're for his glory. And they're for the help and well-being of others. For the help and well-being of others. You know, I've met unsaved people that seem to be more willing to give their stuff and lend their stuff for people than some Christians. I've had unsaved neighbors over the year that literally, I barely mention it, hey, here, here's this lawn equipment, here's this something, here's this something, and, and would help for an inordinate amount of time. No, the unsaved world should not be more giving and more willing to use their stuff to help other people than we should. That should, we should be. Now, again, I've met many Christians that have unbelievable giving hearts, but it really should be all of us. You know, we're told to love our neighbors as our what? As ourselves. They had the two greatest commandments. What? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbor yourself. Jesus asked, what are the two greatest commandments? He goes, everything hangs on those two. Everything. Once you believe it all belongs to God, and it's for his glory and to help other people, it really prioritizes our focus really distills down what actually matters. Now, genuine belief, so we believe, number one here, we believe that all things belong to God. Genuine belief will cause action that verifies our faith, verifies our trust, and gratitude. And this is where Solomon gets a little more specific. He says, honor the Lord with your possessions with the first fruits of some of your increase. That's not what he says, is it? He says, all of your increase. All the increase. 
all the increase, remember that the first fruits go to the Lord. Now, you may think, and I may think, originally, I don't think this, but you may think, I may have thought it at one point, it popped in my mind, or it wouldn't be in my notes. Well, Solomon was loaded. Of course, he'd say that. He was a multi-billionaire, right? In, in today's terms, he would be. Of course, Solomon could say, give your first fruits. The guy was loaded with money. Well, I remind you two things. A, Solomon didn't say it. He simply wrote down what the Holy Spirit gave him. That's number one. So you can't attribute the statement to Solomon. All he was was the pass-through. If I tell you what a verse says, all I'm doing is, see, prophets are only supposed to take what God gives them and re-give it out. So God says, Solomon, tell people, honor me with their first fruits of all their increase. Okay, that's what I write down. But I'm loaded, Lord, they'll look at me. Doesn't matter. You didn't write it, I said it. Number two, though, in Solomon's defense, when Solomon was a young man and God told him he could have anything he wanted, guess what he didn't choose? Money. Can you imagine asking most 18, 17-year-old boys, God comes to you. They're not talking about a genie here. We're talking about literal God of the universe. says, I'll give you anything your heart desires. And Solomon said, I just want wisdom. You parents would love to have a kid that would answer like that. A lot of people would say, I, uh, how about a 22,000-square-foot home? How about enough money to live the rest of my life and never work? God didn't put any strings attached, but Solomon chose well, and that's why he got to write some stuff for the Lord. He didn't choose money. He didn't choose fame. He chose wisdom. Now, Christian, resign in your heart. Resign in your heart to be a first fruit giver of your time, of your talent, and your treasure. You've got to just say, Lord, I accept this. I believe this. This is your word. I'm resigning my heart to be a first fruit giver in every aspect of my life. I'll say this. Jesus' blood is more than worth that. That was good. God said, well, you know, it's not a really big deal that you're giving me the first fruits. I didn't ask for everything. I'm letting you keep a great portion to, to be a steward of. But my son gave all of his blood. It's worth it. When we make the commitment to God, he will move obstacles on our behalf that includes our attitudes. Our attitude is one of the biggest obstacles in our way all the time, isn't it? It's not everybody else. It's almost always in ourselves. He'll remove our own attitudes. Then he'll remove obstacles in our finances. He really will. Won't happen overnight, although it can. He'll remove obstacles in our schedules that seem perpetually full. Yeah, he can, remove our, he can move our schedule around too. Jesus said to seek him first, and everything else will fall in play. Ask yourself a simple question alone before the Lord. God, do I seek you first in everything? If you seek him first, everything else will fall in place. If you don't seek him first, if we don't seek him first, everything else will fall apart. That's the way it works. Sadly, most in America, in the American church today, sadly, most American church are not first fruit givers. But rather, I would call most American church today, uh, how about leftover scraps givers? 
This is most of the church today. I don't know if even some of these folks are saved, but most in the church are leftover scraps givers to God. If there's a $10 bill in the wallet, maybe even a, maybe even a 20 it could go to God if things are going well that week. A, well, a well-worn dollar bill and a similarly distressed $100 bill both arrived at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to be retired. As they moved along the conveyor belt to the shredder, they struck up a conversation. The $100 bill reminisced about its travels all over the country. I've had a pretty good life, the $100 bill proclaimed. Well, I've been to Las Vegas, Atlantic City, the finest restaurants in New York, performances on Broadway, and even a cruise from Miami. Wow, said the $1 bill. You really have gotten around. So tell me, says the $100 bill, where have you been throughout your lifetime? Oh, I've been to the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church, the Brethren Church, the United Church of Christ. The $100 bill says the $1 bill. What's a church? And this was written a while back because Calvary Chapel's not in that list. Uh, but it would be right in that list with everybody else. We've 2,400 Calvary Chapels worldwide. We have some of the same issues that any other church does where people love the world or themselves more than they love the, love the Lord. Now, thankfully, in this fellowship, we have many faithful first fruit givers. We really do. We, have, uh, you know, we wouldn't be here today if that wasn't the case uh, because we started from nothing. And the Lord's been very gracious to us as a body. He really has. He's been more good to uh, us as a church family than we deserve. But the most recent reports on giving in the American church put giving at an all-time low in the church, really at an all-time low, even though America is more prosperous today uh, when you look at history. People, you know, even people that don't supposedly make much have cable TV. Even people that supposedly don't make much have smartphones. Even, you know, so we look at all the things that people have today. But one of the more recent comprehensive reports found that the average Christian in America, the average, because this, this study was done in 211, 212, gives 2.5% of their income to the Lord. The average Christian in America gives 2.5% of their income to the Lord. Guess what it was in the Great Depression? 3.3%. People gave more to God in the Great Depression than they do today. 3.3 then, 2.5 now. And that was when people were devastated, living in soup kitchens, and and yet people still gave more to God. They still believed more that God would take care of them then than they do today. A report from the Bureau of Economic Analysis in 2015 breaks down the average spending of America and actually where their money goes. Housing, for example, on average is at 18% of people's expenditures. Health care, and this is frightening, is all the way up to 17%. Uh, it's approaching the cost of housing. We've got major problems in this country, folks. We need revival because these things will only get worse, by the way. Recreation, how about this, though? Recreational durable goods, such as hunting equipment, ATVs, wakeboards, bikes, basketball goals, trampolines, were 5% of the average American spending. Hold on just a second. I think giving to God was 2.5%. Recreational, durable goods, 5%. Man, we we can't afford to do this. Oh, that's a Honda ATV? Yeah, let's buy it. We can't afford this. We can't afford to help God out or do this or do that. 
and I could sure use a new hunting bow, people will do it. The reality is that many in the church spend twice as much on recreational stuff than they do with the Lord. About 30, get this, about 33 to 50% of those who regularly attend church and consider themselves invested in a church ministry give zero, zero, 33 to 50%, depending on what denomination you're talking about. 33 to 50% of people, and that would be the same in this church as any other church you go to in Richmond, you would find somewhere in that range, we might be better at maybe it's only 25% here, I don't know. I don't see... I don't see any of your giving or any of the stuff like that, so I don't have a clue who gives what here. We have a church accountant, and the elders handle all that. So I don't know, and I don't want to know. But I do know that these statistics were done across all denominations, 33 to 50% regularly attend, deeply invested by their words, and yet they give absolutely nothing. Um, I guess maybe the thought is, for many people, that someday they will, right? And maybe it goes something like this. I'll help with the work of the gospel. I'll help with missions. I'll help with the persecuted church. But, but next year, because this year I need a new bass boat, or I need a new iPhone, or I need a Frappuccino, right? By the way, I find it comical, but not surprising, that uh, as I was typing my notes, Microsoft Word knows how to spell Frappuccino, but it didn't know how to spell First Fruits. <laughs> I worked for Microsoft for 13 years. Frappuccino, as a word, was introduced in 1995. First Fruits has been in the book of Proverbs for over 3,000 years. Do you see where the mindset of our country is? Frappuccino, and it capitalizes it because it's a trademark name. It capitalizes it even. Unbelievable. Sadly, though, a lot of Christians know more about Frappuccinos than they do about first fruits. Really. There's Christians that sit in church pews that spend more on Starbucks in a month than they ever spend on God. Now, here's the point. God doesn't need your money. God is rich. <laughs> That's an understatement, right? God owns it all. He doesn't need anyone here's money. We don't even pass an offering plate here. We don't even talk about the offering hardly. We pray over it, and then I have people say, where do you give here? I can't even figure out where I'm supposed to give. Is there, some, is there a plate somewhere in this place? Are you hiding where I'm supposed to give it? Hey, well, we try and hide it. We only want people who really want to give. It's a tiny box. It's, a, it's, small, it's about the size of your smartphone over there. Maybe a phablet or something like that. We have two spots. We don't talk about it for the most part, but it's still in the Bible. And it's still something that God said, Solomon says, hey, you want to be blessed? First fruits. Now, where does this word first fruit come from? Well, it's first mentioned in Exodus chapter 23. It's the first time we see the word first fruits mentioned in the Bible. Um, I'm going to write. I'm going to write the uh, software coders at Microsoft to tell them, hey, uh, here's how you spell first fruits. It's been around for 3,000 years. But it was first in Exodus 23, and it spoke of the Feast of Harvest and the Feast of Ingathering. And these are two of the feasts given under the law. Two of the three feasts required this first fruit giving. And you have the three feasts, uh, these primary feasts where the uh, three of the feasts 
all the men of Israel were required to go up to the Lord. Now, why did it say go up? Because later that up will refer to where? Jerusalem and the temple. At that time, there was no temple, but God was already telling them where you're going to go. My house is going to sit up on a hill. It sits up uh, on Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem. So three times a year, all the men of Israel were to go and leave their employment, not make any money that time, hope that the farm survived while they go up to the Lord, which is a great act of faith as well. And by the way, while they were supposed to leave all that behind, they were also supposed to take a first fruit offering for two of those feasts as well. Now, what did that mean? Well, the first fruit, it was only related to food. It was, it was things that they harvested. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't every single thing. It wasn't the coins in their pocket. The first fruit offering started out that those would be things they harvested from the field. The fruit of the vine, it applied to that. And because all of that would put into, be put into the storehouses. So things that were harvested or picked, that's what it applied to. The principle was, what the principle God was explaining with these two original offerings was that man can't actually produce a crop. That's a miracle. Man can only harvest a crop. Make sense? You can plant as many seeds as you want, but if God doesn't send rain, there will not be a harvest. So the original first fruit was God's way of saying, You don't have anything unless I gave it to you. That's what God was saying. That your first fruits were because you put seeds in the ground, and I I had this big ball of yellow, which we've been missing lately, that actually shines on your fields, and I send rain to your fields. But if I withhold the big ball of yellow and the rain, you don't have a crop. So you'd be really thankful farmers over here. We need it. And then when they get a crop, it it was reasonable to say, wow, we want to go give this Lord because thank the Lord he... When you live in a agrarian society, you're depending on that. So that was the first principle. Now, does first fruits, does this word first fruits, does it relate to the word tithe that comes later in the Old Testament? The word tithe means tenth. Um, yes, as the first fruit offering uh, was a worship to the Lord and a thanks to God, so is a tithe. Both are a worship and a thanks or gratitude to God. In fact, the first mentioned tithe is before the law, a man by the name of Abraham, right? So Abraham, after the Lord gives him a great victory, he presents a tithe, a 10% of what he has to the priests of Salem and thanks for God's goodness, God's hand on him. And the Lord would formally institute uh, the tithe under the law among Israel that was actually three separate ties. So when God instituted the tithe on Israel, it was actually three separate ties. One tithe went for the Levites. They were doing the ministry of what would be worship, sacrifices, leading the people, teaching the people. They would be ministering the law. So one for the Levites. Two, the other tithe was for the temple the actual worship of the temple, the temple building, the actual supplies for the temple, all the things that were required to make the temple operational, as well as the feast that would take place at the temples. That was the second tithe. And the third tithe was for the poor of the land, people that were were downtrodden, that God would say, 
this tithe will actually help the poor that desperately need help. Now think about it. All of those categories represent the exact same work of the church today. Nothing's changed. I mean, the, the actual you know, structure looks different, but the foundational dynamics of those are still the same. We still need a place and a property to worship, to have services, to invite people to church, and uh, any of the things that you would have uh, that would be kind of the temple. You still have to have church leadership and full-time staff, and you have to have ministry funds to reach out to people who are outside the church, particularly those who are poor, downtrodden, uh, not just literally downtrodden and poor, but poor with they have a lack of the gospel in their heart. And Jesus is sending us out into all the world. So the same functions still take place. And this isn't just about money. If people have an increase in other things, God wants them to use that as well. How about if someone gets an increase in time? They've done really well for themselves. They get saved. And all of a sudden, they're in a semi-retirement state, and they have more time. And God says, use, some of that time, use the first for that time to serve me. Now, I'll never retire. I plan on just... Uh, Either work until I die, or you know, just um, you know, I, I would have a semi. Even if I wasn't someday a pastor, some I would do some other kind of ministry work and continue to go on to to help. But there's people that, for a variety of reasons, God's given them more time, and as their health is able to, God would say, "Hey, use use that time for me." Maybe God gives a person a new ability or skill. Maybe along the way, they picked up a second language while they were in, uh, in a different line of work, and now they get saved, and God said, now use that second language in ministry. So it's not just about God wants us to use anything that we have for him. It's a portion of that time or that talent or that treasure. Does the New Testament affirm the tithe, or does it affirm something else? Yes. How's that for an answer? See, in the New Testament, the tithe is before the law. Uh, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the tithe comes before the law with Abraham. Then it is under the law with Moses. And then in the New Testament, after the giving of grace, after Jesus gave 100% of himself, we don't see the tithe mentioned by name. But prior to the cross, Jesus affirmed the tithe And after the cross, the emphasis is on cheerful and liberal giving. So so then we have passages like we're in Proverbs right now. People that would say, well, I I didn't see the word tithe. I'm glad that's out. Well, do you still read Proverbs? Because first fruit giving is still in there. And the principle of these things uh, is that everything God built before the law with Abraham, with the law with Moses, with Christ and post-law, is that throughout the Bible, one thing is clear, God wants all of his children to be first-fruit givers, which is exactly what we're seeing here. Because everything else here in Proverbs, we'd follow to the letter. And this applies as well, to be cheerful and liberal giving. The early church gave well beyond the tithe. Look at Acts chapter 2. They, they just started throwing almost everything they had. Man, get the gospel out. Get the gospel out. You know, we didn't have Peter and Paul saying, you people got to start giving. They had to tell them to stop. We can't bring it all in. That's, de- that's definitely not a problem in America today. We, we do not have that problem anymore. We don't have the early church's problem, but we don't have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're praying for revival. 
But what Solomon points out here is the first fruit giving, it's not an impulse either. It's not a guilty moment. Uh, It's not a, I think I have a 20 in the pocket. No, it's a regular commitment. Look at your Bibles. Look what he says. Honor the Lord with possessions with the first fruits of all your increase. He says specifically it's predicated on as God blesses each time the increase comes in, you already are committed to giving right back to God. So this, it, uh, what Solomon is saying is this is habit forming. You are saying, Lord, this is the habit of my life. Just like, Lord, I'm going to get up and read my Bible. Lord, I'm going to get up and pray. Lord, I'm going to tell people about you. Lord, I'm going to love other people. This is the lifestyle, he's saying. This is wisdom. He says, if you want God's blessing, you will have to make this part of your life. First fruit giving. Jesus said, Wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. Interesting, he doesn't say, he doesn't say wherever your heart is, then your treasure will be there. Uh Uh-uh. He says you actually have to do it first, then the heart will follow. Wow, isn't that interesting? He says your treasure goes before the heart, which means you have to obey it first. It's like saying, I'll eat broccoli when I like it. God says, no, you'll eat it when you don't like it, and then you'll like it. This is the way a parent tells a child, right? Oh, I'll eat it when I like it. Well, then you'll never like it. So God says, you give, and then your heart will actually eventually arrive at the same place of the obedience, and you'll actually say, man, I love giving now. But at the outset, it might be difficult. Put the first and best of our time and our talent and treasure into the things of God by faith and obedience first. That's where it starts. And then our heart will grow to love God and love his work even more. And, and by the way, since, again, I see throughout the Bible the principle of tithing, the principle of first fruits. I tell people that they're not first fruit givers. I'm just like, you know, th- this isn't legalism. Start with a percentage and start growing from there. I'm going to start giving 3% of my paycheck to the Lord and keep growing. I mean, I say the same thing about, about prayer, about witnessing. I don't tell people, hey, go win your entire neighborhood to Christ this weekend, and then you'll prove that you love God. I say, go tell somebody. Go invite somebody. Go start praying five minutes a day. So God's, all these things are principles to have this fullness of life that Solomon is telling his son, and the Holy Spirit's telling us. And God will bless it then with an overflow of grace. Um, I mentioned on Facebook uh, yesterday uh, that we've had already this year five people, over, it's only the fifth month of the year, we've had five people over the age of 60 receive Christ at this church. Five people since January. Do you know that's more people over the age of 60 coming to Christ in the first five months than the last five years combined? You're giving to a harvest whether you realize it or not. See, this is the vats that God's talking about. This is the new wine and the new wineskins that Jesus is talking about. It's not just this wine. He's talking about, I want to put new wine and new wineskins. I want to do a new work that you wouldn't believe it even if I told you. Let's look at the next thing. We've got to hurry. You say, we don't have to, just you do, Tim. I know. Respond to God. So what first is give to God, then respond to God. Now these next verses, they're, well, they're probably tougher to chew on than the other passages here. 
My son, do not despise the chastening Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. How many used to love when your parents corrected you? And some correction was quite firm back in our day, right? Back when corporal punishment was normal, you know. Everyone could whip you. The neighbors could. uh, The principal could. Almost a total stranger, and it was okay. I mean, it was... Just about anybody could correct you back those days. Today, you get lawsuits from every different direction. Used to be like four neighbors could actually whip you and hand you back to your parents. Like, parents like, well, now he's really going to get it, you know, that kind of thing. But um, people by nature, by our nature, not the new nature of Christ, but by our sin nature, uh, people like to be corrected about as much as they like to test their face with money. They like to be corrected about as much as they like to test their faith with money. And Jesus knows that both of them are problematic, but both of them are where we'll grow. When we trust God with all we have and give it to him, and when we're teachable and correctable, we're going to see God open up new doors for us and really impacting other people, really with the gospel. Now, this passage is requoted in Hebrews chapter 12. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 for just a second. Because anytime something is reemphasized in the New Testament, there's something, um, and I would have loved to have done more with the other passage. We just don't have time. But let's look at Hebrews chapter 12 where this is re-mentioned and understand the context of these same passages for the New Testament believer. See how important Proverbs 3 is? The whole thing is wound up in the New Testament, spirit-filled life as well. Because if we're not correctable, we're not going to be usable in the hands of Jesus. So in in Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse uh, 5. And you, verse 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation. We are forgetful people, aren't we? We can forget the most important thing. So the writer of Hebrews says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Here the, the, the writer is saying, you haven't been reading your Old Testament Bible because they didn't have a New Testament at this time. You have not, you stopped reading your Bibles is what he's saying. Uh, that's one of the things he's saying. But my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges. Now that's actually with a whip. The chasten doesn't have to be whipped, but the scourge there does. Every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons and daughters. For what son or daughter is there in whom a father does not chasten? But if you are, here's a scary one in verse 8 though. But if you are without chastening, of which all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So it says, God never chastens me. I say, uh, that's not a good thing. God chastens me all the time. I'm, I'm in the principal's office on a regular basis. Um, but lovingly, God is continually correcting, redirecting. Now, why does God chasten us? Let's look at some reasons why God chastens us. He certainly isn't trying to make our life miserable. Why does he chasten us? First one. If we are drifting, we've forgotten. We're drifting. You know, the hymn says, uh, prone to wander, right? We're drifting away. 
A shepherd carries a staff for two reasons. Jesus is our good shepherd. One, the staff is to beat off things like wolves. So the shepherd's staff protects us. You know what the other staff does? Sheep's out of line. A good little whack, you know, gets it back in line. We can be drifting. What does drifting look like? We have new personal priorities that now supersede God's priorities for our life. Well, God, I used to have time for that. But you know, I got a promotion. But you know, I took up a hobby. But you know, I don't have time for this anymore, God. That's drifting. Then, it can also be um, not only the drifting here, but let's look at the second one. We're rebelling. Now, this can be someone really not just drifting. They've just decided to go back into sin. That's going to be, God's going to deal uh, majorly with someone saying, oh, I don't think I like being married. I want that spouse. That's open rebellion. Completely rejecting what God has said and saying, you know, I'm just going to do what, exactly what the world does. Number three, we are too self-reliant. We still think that we've got it all together. I got news for everyone here. No one in this room has it all together. And when you invite visitors, you can tell them, we do not have it all together. We are a bunch of people held by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not have it all together. We, we, we actually have the one as our Father who holds us all together and holds it together, but we don't have it all together. But some people really get prideful and self-reliant and say, yeah, I'm really good at this, I'm really good at that, I don't really need God's help here, I don't need God's help here. And God will say, really? Peter had this for a little bit. He thought, uh, hey, the other guys on the team, they're probably going to flake out, not me. What happened to Peter? He was too self-reliant. Boy, he came back the most humble shepherd, and God said, now you can preach at Pentecost. Before, he wasn't ready to preach at Pentecost. I know that God over the years has whittled me down again and again and again. And when, just when I think he's whittled me down again, he whittles me some more. How about you? He'll chasten the self-reliance out of us. Number four, uh, uh, num- that was number three, sorry. Number four, we aren't listening and we aren't applying. You know, if you ever had played sports, a coach will get on someone who's not, you're not listening, Johnny. Not listening, Susie. That's not what I told you to do. Son, you got a hard head. You ever heard that as a player? I did. Why is it okay that we accept that and then when God says that, I can't believe God treats me this way. Right? He's better than a coach. We're not listening. We're not applying. We're good hearers of the word, but we're not doers of the word, so God will chasten that. This can be bad habits. Things that we've picked up along the way, they're just bad habits. We respond to things in life and approach. We thought it would be helpful. We did it without biblical counsel. And then finally, God said, no, 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 time out. That's not the way we do things here in the kingdom. And he'll fix what's kind of just one of those things that are our own understanding, if you will. We are not listening to his ways. In the workshop I'll do on June 2nd about dealing with stress and fear and anxiety and panic and depression... Uh, we'll look at the source of those things, but we'll also 
we'll discuss and really look at God's help and guides, how to address these things, but every one of them will take application. You would never be able to say, boy, I know everything on that page. I'm just not, I think I'll implement it next year. Then you'll be in the same place next year. You will not have moved at all. But if you really want to see deliverance, God will say, I'll give you these things, follow them, apply them. They won't happen overnight, but you'll start to see radical change over time in your life. Some of the things we may know to apply and commit to God, um, and we might know what we should do and we haven't, then God will even allow areas of suffering in our life to get our attention to mold us. If we're very self-reliant, God might really attack that area. The things that we think we're the best at, we're actually not. And he'll attack those things, and I don't, attack's not the right word. He'll actually address those things, but he'll let the enemy even attack in those areas. He let, he, he let Peter be attacked. He said, Satan desires to sift you as wheat, right? He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move the door for a second and let him rough you up a little bit, but it'll get your attention, and you'll be molded. Proverbs, uh, uh, there's an old proverb, it's not a biblical proverb, but uh, an old proverb says, suffering is a stern teacher, but a good one. That's true. It is a stern teacher, but really, it does, it really does corral uh, our intentions. And number five here, we are immature and still learning. That's all of us here. There's areas that we're all immature as believers and still learning. Some areas that God won't even address with you yet because he's still working on these other areas. But then when those areas are done, you come along, you might actually be attempting to do the right thing and even in the right heart, but God will give a little adjustment through his word, maybe a teaching, maybe something you hear on the radio, a book you read, and you'll be running around telling everybody, look at what I read, they're all like, you're just now figuring that. No, I'm just kidding. You know? <laughs> maybe a conversation through, uh, through mature Christians, and it takes a very mature Christian to gently correct, and you'll, only, you'll really receive from people, you should really receive people that you know genuinely love you that are not trying to make you look bad. As a matter of fact, they'll do everything they can to mo- not to make you look bad and to take you so you're not putting a bad light in front of people. That's when you know people really love you. They're really trying to help you grow, and God will use those in your life. Those are called mentors, and we're called to be disciples that disciple people because you really are trying to help people. You really are uh, trying to help them mature in areas of their life. And so, and that's not, that's not a hard chastening. That's just God saying, I know you mean well, but if you say it that way, you're actually turning people off to the gospel. Here's how to say it, right? Something like that. It can be that kind of maturing in the Lord. It brings us to our last thing. That's learning from God. Last one is flourish. Flourish in God. How many of you want to flourish in the Lord? You really want to flourish. Um, All of these things, they build on each other, right? Foundation, bricks and mortar, studs, plumbing, they all go together. God is building line upon line, precept upon precept. They all go together. As Pastor Chuck used to say, now let's take, actually, before I mention what Pastor Chuck used to say, let's look at the passage again. In verse 13, it says, happy is the man who finds wisdom Moving on, past 12. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Um, go down to verse 18. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Happy are all who retain her. 
once again we see um, we see nature here, a tree. We see uh, early in the verses that um, the new wine and uh, the vats, would, the barns would be filled with things like grain. So we see this agricultural. Again, Solomon is speaking to an, agrar- uh, an agrarian society. But he's saying that this tree of life that you'll take hold of, um, God wants us to flourish. He wants us to be um, full of the goodness of the Lord and growing in the Lord. And he mentions uh, happiness twice here. We'll, we'll take a look at why that might be mentioned. But as Pastor Chuck used to like to say, the church and the body of Christ, it's not a factory, it's a garden. You, we are not a factory here. You know what's sad about so many church kind of methodologies today? They look like factory methodology. It looks like presto machine. And matter of fact, some churches have even adopted all the uh, kind of like um, post-industrial kind of look inside, which is very factory looking. Uh, I kind of like wood because it means that something that was life, you know, something that came from the earth that God, God wants to send the rains and stuff like that. Uh, you know, everything is turning. You know, some these kind of motifs now really look like factory thinking. And the Lord is saying, and I'm not, that, there's nothing wrong with that. We've got some, we've got, trust me, we've got Calvary chapels that have some of those same motifs. So I'm not, don't overanalyze uh, that. <laughs> My point is that factory thinking can actually make churches operate as machines and not as a living organism. And there's no personal anymore. And it's just um, kind of just, run the machine and feed it this way and church consultants say this and that's not what the Lord ordained. Now the same is true for the individual Christian. See, gardens take time, don't they? They take pruning. They take careful care and weeding and watering and then waiting for God to bring forth the fruit. We just do all that little stuff of weeding and waiting and then we wait for God to save souls. We wait for God to speak to people. Notice the word I mentioned happy in verse 13 and also in verse 18. The word's mentioned twice here. and um, It's tied both times. Both times the word's mentioned. The word is tied to adhering to wisdom. So when you see the word happy in verse 13, you see it in verse 18, both times it's tied to listening to and responding to wisdom. Now, a way of review from our previous studies, going all the way back to our first study, where does wisdom start? You don't have to answer out class. It starts with the fear of the Lord. Remember Proverbs 1.8? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So, we know that wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. But happiness is tied to wisdom. Let's follow this chain. To fear the Lord is to obey the Lord. And to obey the Lord is to pursue His holiness. 
To obey the Lord is to pursue his holiness. You'll never pursue his holiness unless you fear him first. In other words, you have an awe of him. You have a reverence of him. You recognize that he is in control of your very breath. He owns it all. You have that kind of fear of the Lord. And then you'll pursue his holiness, not for any other reason at first, just to obey because he's king of kings and lord of lords. 1 Peter 1.16, Peter, who was humbled by the Lord and then brought back be a great man of God, he says this, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. That's what Peter wrote. Don't worry, be happy it was a song once. Remember that one? But it's not a passage in Scripture. There's no scrap passage that says, don't worry, be happy. Now, God doesn't want us to worry. That's true. But he doesn't want us to pursue happiness. Americans are confused you know, by our own founding of the nation. Happiness is a byproduct of pursuing holiness. Happiness is a byproduct of pursuing holiness. Notice verse 13, happy is the man who finds wisdom and gains understanding. What does the word gain mean? Well, that means to embrace it and to follow it. To embrace the fear of the Lord, to follow the fear of the Lord. That man will become happy But notice that wasn't the goal of the man. The man's goal was to embrace wisdom and the fear of the Lord. Happiness came along for the ride. Make sense? It's not happy as the man that pursues happiness. Happy is the man who pursues life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm a patriot. Isn't that what we're all supposed to do? I love our country, but that's not a verse that we can hang our hat on there. I'd add these days, it would actually, the way, if it was rewritten for today's society, it would say, the pursuit of life, liberty, and personal pleasure and relaxation. That's the way it would be written for today's, because we don't even have, we don't even have the kind of mindset for future generations. I was watching a documentary recently, and George Washington encourages troops, even if they were going to die, he said, what you're doing will help the souls of millions of yet unborn. Today, I don't care about the unborn. I care about what I'm getting today, right? See, the pursuit of holiness is a greater, a much greater pursuit. And, and then God will bestow upon us joy and happiness if we pursue his holiness. And you see, all the things that people are pursuing today, they're pursuing happiness and not holiness. Even in the body of Christ, people are pursuing happiness. Well, I don't want to come to the prayer meeting because that doesn't make me happy. Well, well I may ask you a question. If you come to the prayer meeting, will it make you holy? Well, they could do that. Well, that's what you're supposed to pursue. No one ever told you to pursue happiness. I don't want to go to Bon Air because that's not a happy place. No, it's not. But you'll become holy in the process. People are pursuing happiness, and yet, what are they still today? They're still unhappy. They're still stressed out. They're still unfulfilled. They're still dissatisfied. They're still angry. They're still agitated. They're still cursing. They're still mumbling under their breath. All that, and they're actually pursuing happiness. We see what wisdom produces. It produces a character in us. Look at all these other things. Her proceeds are better than silver, uh, better than the gain of gold, more precious than rubies. Jesus is saying, what I'm fashioning inside of you, money can't buy. You can't buy 
character. You can't buy honesty. You can't buy faithfulness. God produces it in us when we pursue his holiness. That's what wisdom is. Theodore Roosevelt said it's better to be faithful than famous. Better to be faithful. Well, Jesus says it quite a bit differently. He says Jesus will someday tell us, well done, good and what? Faithful servant. Not good and happy servant. Faithful servant. Happiness will come along. Joy will come along. But faithful is what he speaks to. Those who don't heed the warnings of Matthew chapter 25 are called foolish. Those who heed the Matthew 25 warnings are called what? Wise. We see it again. New Testament, Old Testament, perfect harmony, two sides of the same loaf of bread. They're called wise. Truly better than all the world's wealth. Wisdom is a tree of life, it says here. She's a tree of life. This is a picture, a direct picture of salvation. Even in the new, do you realize in heaven, the tree of life is there? The tree of life is in the garden. It'll be in heaven. The wisest thing a person can ever do is come to Christ. That's the wisest thing a person can do. Then after that, the wisest thing is to keep following Christ. That's the first thing was to come. Second thing was to abide in him and to stay. I t- my God, I'm not this coming Sunday. This Sunday is the 22nd. On the, no, this Sunday is, what is this Sunday? Yeah, 22nd. This Sunday, I have to do the second part of the cross. The 29th, I'm finally doing the message, what is salvation? I was talking to my daughters about eternal security. I said, you will never, Jesus will never, ever cast you out of his hand. But we talked about, but you can jump out. and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go back to the world. I want to I live like I want to. But he'll never cast you out. We'll talk about what salvation is on the 29th. Um, but Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? All of this is worth more than rubies and gold, the wisdom of having salvation. Jesus said, uh, or the, uh, Paul wrote in Romans 4, 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are covered. But as we close here, it's not just about salvation. We can flourish now in Christ, not just in heaven where we'll flourish for all eternity, uh, but we can flourish now and, and by God's grace be healed again and again. You know you're going to need more healing next, next decade than this decade? You're going to need to be healed again and again. You're going to need God's grace again and again. You're going to need God's forgiveness again and again. And you can still flourish even while you stumble. You know, Abraham and Moses, they made a few mistakes, but do you know that they were advancing all the time? even though they made some mistakes, even though they skinned their knees a few times. Psalm 92, 12, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. I love beautiful trees, and God wants to have us to flourish. The tree of life helps us to become a tree that other people can find shade under, that other people can, our life can be a blessing to other people. We're not just in it for ourselves. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Proverbs, we'll get to the 11th chapter, but we'll come to a close there. God doesn't want us to trust in riches or in ourself or anything else like that. He wants us to flourish in the fullness of his grace. By the way, I didn't mention it, but this little book, if you're interested uh, in a good thing on financial stewardship, this is in our bookstore, Dr. Tony Evans. You ever hear the Urban Alternative on the radio? Living in Financial Victory. Dr. Evans was one of the first persons that had an impact on me on the radio when I heard him say about... Talking to it, he said, here's how I counsel couples. Dr. Evans, we're having all kinds of financial difficulty. 
you better start giving. <laughs> That's what he would tell them. But it's more theologically deep than that. But anyway, um, there's a lot of other things there. All right, let's come to a close. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, help us to apply these things. You desire that we'd have the fullness of your grace in our life. You, you desire, Lord, that our joy may be full. You, you've written these things, Lord, that our joy would be full. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we would be teachable, correctable. And, uh, Lord, you just continue to mold us and shape us into your image. In your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.